Obama's book or Michelle Obama's book, if they want to get on the waiting list for it, they can contact y'all. Yeah, indeed. So uh, you can always go to mahoganybooks.com. That's our uh, online store website. Uh, we offer pre-orders on almost every book that's out. In fact, we're doing a bunch of pre-orders for Amanda Gorman's books, uh, the fantastic young poet that was at the um, President Biden's inauguration. Uh, so again, uh, they can go to mahoganybooks.com. We're always promoting uh, new books and uh, on our Instagram and at, at, at all of our socials is uh, at Mahogany Books. Yeah, we'd love to be able to provide those books to anybody. Looking, you know, a lot of people think black books are just for black people. Everybody needs to read about our history. Everybody needs to know about the contributions we've made to this country and others too. So we're excited to be able to provide that for everyone. All right, then. We surely appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, Derek Young, Ramonda Young, Mahogany Books here in Washington, D.C. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, this, this um, uh, Amisha, is, again, um, when, when you're deliberate. And I think what we're talking about here is we're trying to get black consumers to be deliberate in their actions, deliberate in their spending, uh, deliberate, and, and even if, look, you can't do it, you know, on everything, if, if, you, if you just simply say, hey, I'm going to make the effort, perfect example, uh, you know, we are in Atlanta today, uh, we're in Tuskegee, Alabama tomorrow, uh, and we're going to be uh, in Jacksonville, Florida uh, on Thursday, and uh, typically, and I, I've been, you know, I've been with CNN, TV One, and we've had these events, and We've had, we've had, you know, productions and somebody they say, well, hey, we just, we're just going to order some food from Corner Bakery or here. I said, no, 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 no. We're going to find a black caterer or a black restaurant that's in Atlanta. We're going to order the food from them. We're going to find out a black-owned restaurant or caterer in Tuskegee, Alabama. We're going to order food from them. We're going to do the exact same thing in Jacksonville. Uh, I remember when I was at TV One, um, and, and folk can take this the wrong way, but I don't really care. Um, it bothered me immensely. When we would we would have um, we would have I would have big interviews and they couldn't find no black photographer and I was like damn I said if the black media company don't hire a black photographer who the hell gonna hire black photographers and so I remember we had our PR person it was her first day this was her, probably her first week this is the first time she had to encounter me I said come here I said the next time I have an interview like this here. I better see a black photographer who y'all employ. And, 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 and just understand that was a black photographer after that every time because I had to force them, a black media company, to say, go find somebody who can do this who's black to provide them a shot. I think rolling to that point, part of this is you have to be intuitive and want to do it. Because I think it is very easy for folks to get lulled away and, oh, I'm going to order from this restaurant or, oh, I'm going to invest in this bookstore. I'm just going to Amazon this thing. Um, these are typically things that aren't top of mind for a lot of people, even though they should be for black people. If we talk about you know raising our bed of entrepreneurship, having more leaders and more people who are out here doing this thing on their own and leaving something for their kids and future generations, we also have to, as a people invest in invest in those future generations, invest in those entrepreneurs who look like us, uh, make sure that we know who in our community has coffee shops, make sure that we know who in our community has sandwich shops, who in our community has entertainment venues, who in our community can serve as the makeup artists, the, you know, the wedding planners, all, all of these things that people use 
regular basis. But I think that in many cases, because of you know lack of advertisement, sometimes it can make it harder for them to reach the masses. But for black people, there has to be an intuitive thing within us that says, no matter where we are, we should be looking for people who own these companies who look like us that we can actually take our dollars to. Because in many cases, that's 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 the tools that they need. That's how they drum up attention. That's how they get what they need. Um, I'm a native Chicagoan, so sip and savor. Shout out to them. I love that coffee shop. That's the only coffee shop I would go to in the entire city because it is owned by a black man. It is owned by a black man who was able to expand and have multiple coffee shops that carry his name. In D.C., I go to Mahogany Books. Right. I appreciate right. Mahogany Books. That's one of the bookstores that I believe, actually, because of what they also do for the community. As someone who's worked in education policy, I have a great respect for bookstores that are also providing books for kids who otherwise would not be able to receive. We have to intuitively make those decisions ourselves instead right. of supporting our black entrepreneurs. Well, Mustafa, uh, again, we got to keep pushing it. We got to keep pushing it. Got to keep pushing it. Uh, the reason I keep talking about the black media dollars is because then we're able to provide a mahogany books uh, who may not be who, can, who may not be able to afford a big marketing advertising campaign. The opportunity to have be on for five, six, seven, eight minutes, which is invaluable for a black-owned business. If you want to be in community, be in community, and what that means is that you have to support each other. You know, black doctors, my my doctor is black, my dentist is black, my health food store is black, um, and I can go down the line. And that's because it's not just about raising your right hand with a power fist when the moment comes. It is also about being very intentional about your dollars um, because a dollar is it, power. And how we use it will determine if we actually build wealth inside of our communities that then gives us leverage and power to do so many other things, um, or if we continue to just let it float away and someone else to utilize it. Bottom line is, uh, I really uh, can do without terrorists, the, uh, the convenient Negroes, uh, who are conveniently black uh, when uh, they need or desire something. Uh, and again, we talk about uh, the collective, the community, you got to actually be about it, uh, and when the, if, and again, here's the deal: if you take care of the community, the community will take care of you. Actually, you said it absolutely uh, correct. If you take care of the community, and, and the word community obviously is a common union, and so uh, I, I'm literally loving this segment right now because um, that's really what this thing is all about. And like we always talk about leverage and. Um, one of the most frustrating things to me that I've actually seen, even in my hometown of Battle Creek, Michigan, um, a, a lot of times in predominantly black neighborhoods, we see everybody owning businesses except for people who live there. But unfortunately, what happens is they will come in and actually take those dollars and then they choose to live somewhere else. And so we constantly are seeing this all over the country where those dollars are leaving our community going somewhere else. And yet we're still struggling. So, so Mar, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that you are actually talking more, or that we're actually having this conversation right now. You don't understand my heart is just really touched because um, uh, we, we, we cannot no longer apologize for supporting our own because nobody else is. You know, nowhere in, in the United States that I know of that you can go to a Chinese restaurant and see somebody black working there or even somebody white for that matter. And they don't apologize for that. And so neither should we apologize for that. So, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to actually make for sure that we're supporting one another because we can lift ourselves up if we do that. 
Well, and that's why I subscribe to that great um, financial wizard, Frank Lucas, in the movie American Gangster, when Denzel Washington said, I'm going to get that money. He said, I'm going to get that money. Uh, so, so somebody, somebody, I know he was a drug dealer. All I'm saying, y'all, is I'm cool with that phrase, I'm going to get that money. That's what we got to be about uh, in order to actually change the condition of our community. Which is one of the reasons why we want you to support what we do here. Uh, your resources allow for us to travel uh, all across this country. Uh, I got to I got to shout out um, this. I'm trying to think. Do I want to give the brother's name? Uh, uh, who uh, literally I was looking at um, the other day, and um, uh, this brother uh, sent in five thousand dollars for our show. Um, he said, uh, uh, he said, uh, I'm, I'm tired of, he said, I'm tired of the show buffering on YouTube. Uh, so I want to, I want to help make sure, uh, want to help make sure, uh, to help y'all build this OTT channel. Y'all know we're actually having them built right now. Uh, it cost us $153,700. I told y'all I'm upfront with what these things cost. And so, um, when you support us, uh, we certainly appreciate that. Uh, if you give to us on YouTube, remember, we get 55%. If they get 45%, look, YouTube got enough money. Okay, that's good. They got billions upon billions. So if y'all support us, please give direct cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash Unfiltered, venmo.com forward slash Unfiltered. We also have Zale rolling at rollingfmartin.com. Terrace, Mustafa, and um, as well as... Um, Anisha, I certainly appreciate all of y'all being on the panel today. Uh, I'm going to close the show out this way, okay? So hold on. I'm going to close the show out this way. I didn't forget, didn't forget. That was a hearing today, and this was powerful testimony. Uh, it's 8 minutes and 27 seconds. I'm going to go ahead and say holla right now, but I'm going to close the show out with Carnesha Mendoza, Mendoza, Captain Carnesha Mendoza, testifying on Capitol Hill today. It was real busy on Capitol Hill uh, uh, of course, uh, we saw, um, uh, of course, the Senate uh, pass, um, first of all, vote uh, to confirm Linda Thomas-Greenfield to be the next U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. That took place. Also, we saw uh, Governor Pritzker of, Pritzker of Illinois uh, in cash bail in that particular state. And so all those things happened. But this testimony by this sister describing what took place on Capitol Hill on January 6th was riveting. She was a surprise witness. And I want to be sure that you heard uh, what she had to say. So we're going to close the show uh, with this. We'll, I'll see you guys uh, tomorrow. I'll be in Tuskegee, Alabama. I'm interviewing 90-year-old attorney Fred Gray, one of the unsung heroes. We're going to sit down and chat. And so look forward to that. Y'all take care. Uh, I'll see you. Holla. Committee today, and thank you all for your service to our country. My name is Captain Carnesha Mendoza, and I've served with the United States Capitol Police for 19 years. I take a lot of pride in my job. Prior to serving with the Capitol Police, I served as an active duty soldier with the United States Army. My last duty station was split between the Pentagon and the Washington Area Criminal Investigations Division. I received various awards from the Army and the Capitol Police to include an award for recovery efforts during the Pentagon attack. Unfortunately, I didn't save any lives, but there are certain lessons that always stuck with me after 9-11. One of those lessons is knowing the unthinkable is always possible, so be ready. 
So I always take my job very seriously as 9-11 is always in the back of my mind. With the Capitol Police, I have served in various operational, administrative, and collateral assignments. I'm currently serving as a captain in the Special Operations Division, where I have various responsibilities to include serving as a field commander and a field force commander for the Civil Disturbance Unit. Throughout my career, I have responded to and managed various critical incidents and events from congressional and member security related issues to shootings and armed carjackings. I have served as a CDU field force commander for multiple events, including the November 14th Million MAGA March. In my career, I've been activated to work demonstrations with various controversial groups, and I've been called some of the worst names so many times that I'm pretty numb to it now. As an agency, we have trained for and handled numerous demonstrations. It's something we do on a regular basis, and it's something I've always felt we've excelled at. During the Million MAGA March, multiple white supremacist groups, to include the Proud Boys and others, converged on the Supreme Court along with countergroups. The Civil Disturbance Unit fought hard that day, physically breaking up fights and separating various groups. I literally woke up the next day unable to move due to the pain. On January 6th, we anticipated an event similar to the Million MAGA March that took place on November 14th, where we would likely face groups fighting among one another. Additional civil disturbance units were activated that day. I was working the evening shift and had planned to report in at 3 p.m. I was prepared to work a 16-hour shift and assume field force commanders should the event continue into the evening and overnight shifts. It was approximately 1.30 in the afternoon. I was home eating with my 10-year-old, spending time with him before what I knew would be a long day, when a fellow captain contacted me and told me things were bad and that I needed to respond in. I literally dropped everything to respond to work that day early. I arrived within 15 minutes and I contacted dispatch to ask her what active scenes we had. I was advised things were pretty bad. I asked where assistance was needed and was advised of six active scenes. There was an explosive device at the Democratic National Committee building, a second explosive device at the Republican National Committee building, and large hostile groups at different locations outside the Capitol building. I advised the dispatcher I would respond to the DNC since that building was closest to where I was at the time. En route, I heard officers at the Capitol building calling for immediate assistance, so I proceeded past the DNC to the Capitol. As I arrived to the east front plaza of the Capitol, I heard an officer yell there was a breach at the rotunda door, and I heard various officers calling for assistance at multiple locations throughout the building. Many of the doors to the building were not accessible due to the size of the crowd. I was able to enter a lower level door with the assistance of a Capitol division officer. Once inside the memorial door, I immediately noticed a large crowd of possibly 200 rioters yelling in front of me. Since I was alone, I turned to go back so I could enter another door, but within the few seconds it took me to walk back to the door I entered, there were already countless rioters outside the building banging on the door. I had no choice but to proceed through the violent crowd in the building. I made my way through the crowd by yelling and pushing people out of my way until I saw Capitol Police civil disturbance units in riot gear in the hallway. They were holding the hallway to keep rioters from penetrating deeper into the building. I immediately jumped in line with them to assist with holding the crowd of rioters. 
At some point, my right arm got wedged between rioters and the railing along the wall. A CDU sergeant pulled my right arm free, and had he not, I'm certain it would have been broken. Shortly after that, an officer was pushed and fell to the floor. I assisted the officer to a safer location and got back in line. At some point, the crowd breached the line officers worked so hard to maintain. Civil disturbance units began to redeploy to keep rioters from accessing other areas of the building. I proceeded to the rotunda where I noticed a heavy smoke-like residue and smelled what I believed to be military-grade CS gas, a familiar smell. It was mixed with fire extinguisher spray deployed by rioters. The rioters continued to deploy CS into the rotunda. Officers received a lot of gas exposure, which is worse inside the building than outside because there's nowhere for it to go. I received chemical burns to my face that still have not healed to this day. I witnessed officers being knocked to the ground and hit with various objects that were thrown by rioters. Um, I was unable to determine exactly what those objects were. I immediately assumed command in the rotunda and called for additional assets. Officers began to push the crowd out the door. After a couple hours, officers cleared the rotunda but had to physically hold the door closed because it had been broken by the rioters. Officers begged me for relief as they were unsure how long they could physically hold the door closed with the crowd continually banging on the outside of the door, attempting to gain reentry. Eventually, officers were able to secure the door with furniture and other objects. I'm proud of the officers I worked with on January 6th. They fought extremely hard. I know some said the battle lasted three hours, but according to my Fitbit, I was in the exercise zone for four hours and nine minutes, and many officers were in the fight even before I arrived. I'm extremely proud of the United States Capitol Police. I'm especially proud of the officers who are the backbone of this agency and carry out day-to-day -day operations. I know with teamwork, we can move forward. The night of January 7th into the very early morning hours of my birthday, January 8th, I spent at the hospital comforting the family of our fallen officer and met with the medical examiner's office prior to working with fellow officers to facilitate a motorcade to transport Officer Sicknick from the hospital. Of the multitude of events I've worked in my nearly 19 year career in the department, this was by far the worst of the worst. We could have had 10 times the amount of people working with us and I still believe the battle would have been just as devastating. As an American and as an army veteran, it's sad to see us attacked by our fellow citizens. I'm sad to see the unnecessary loss of life. I'm sad to see the impact this has had on Capitol Police officers. And I'm sad to see the impact this has had on our agency and on our country. Although things are still raw and moving forward will be a difficult process, I look forward to moving forward together as an agency and as a country. In closing, I want to honor Chief Sun's leadership. I served under his command as a watch commander for three years and was able to personally see his hard work and dedication. He was fully dedicated to United States Capitol Police and he cared about every employee on the department. I often hear employees on the department praise his leadership and his ability to inspire others. He's made a significant impact on our agency. Thank you, Chief. Thank you.
will end good night, Rachel. Good night, Lawrence. Thank you very much. Yeah, let's never do this again. There is, there's nothing worse than audio problems. Uh, so if you did not get all of your questions answered today in the Senate hearing about the insurrection on January 6th, then our first guest tonight is your next best hope because our first guest tonight will be chairing the next hearing on this in the House of Representatives. Today, two Senate committees held a hearing with the people in charge of the first responders trying to control the insurrection on the, uh, on the Capitol on January 6th. And the most surprising news in the hearing was Stephen Sun, who was forced to resign as the chief of the Capitol Police the day after the invasion of the Capitol, saying that he was never shown the FBI intelligence report about what could happen that day. As Senate Rules Committee Chair Amy Klobuchar began questioning, she began her questioning by describing that FBI intelligence. The FBI's Norfolk field office issued a threat report on January 5th that detailed specific calls for violence online in connection with January 6th, including that protesters, quote, be ready to fight, end quote, end quote, go there ready for war. Here's what the former Capitol Police Chief said about that intelligence. Did you receive this report? Thank you very much for the question, ma'am. Uh, I actually just in the last 24 hours uh, was uh, informed by the department that they actually had received that report. It was re received by what we call a, it's a, uh, one of our sworn members that's assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is a task force with the FBI. Uh, they received it the evening of the 5th, uh, reviewed it, and then forwarded it over to an official at the intelligence uh, division over at uh, U.S. Capitol Police Headquarters. It's and so you hadn't seen it yourself? No, ma'am. It did not go any further than that. Later in his testimony, Stephen Sund added this. If you look at some of our other partner agencies, I think uh, uh, Acting Chief Conti actually made the statement that the breach of the Capitol was not something anybody anticipated, uh, nor do I think some of our federal partners expected it. Now, I don't think Secret Service would have brought up the vice president if they expected it. One point that seemed to emerge from the testimony is that even if Capitol Police accurately anticipated exactly what was going to happen at the Capitol on January 6th, they would not have been able to prevent it. We do train for people trying to get into the building. We don't train for, when I said, an insurrection of thousands of people. An important evidentiary dispute emerged over the Capitol Police emergency request for help from the National Guard. Republican Senator Roy Blunt tried to sort out the dispute between Paul Irving, the House Sergeant-at-Arms, who was also forced to resign after the attack on the Capitol, and the former Capitol Police Chief. Mr. Irving, you said in your testimony that when asked for National Guard assistance, you approved it. Uh, Mr. Sun stated that he asked for the National Guard assistance at 109 and you approved, it was approved at 210. Why would it take an hour to approve National Guard assistance on your part in that moment of crisis? Mr. Irving. Senator, from my recollection, I did not receive a request for approval for National Guard until shortly after 2 p.m. 
when I was in Michael Stenger's right, office. Let me get that straight now. Mr. Sun, do you know when you asked for National Guard assistance? Was it 109 or was it 2 p.m.? It was 109, sir. 109. And who did you ask for assistance at 109? It was from uh, Mr. Irving. I believe he was in the company of Mr. Stinger at the time as well. And Mr. Irving, why would you not remember that? Senator, I have no recollection of a conversation with Chief Sun at that time. You know, I did not get a request at 109 that I can remember. The first conversation I had with Chief Sund in that time frame was at 128, uh, 130. Uh, and and that, in that conversation, he indicated that conditions were deteriorating. He might be looking uh, to for National Guard approval and approval of, of our mutual aid agreements with local law enforcement. Chief of Washington, D.C.'s Police Department, Robert Conti, expressed his surprise at the way the Capitol Police request for the National Guard was treated in a conference call that he participated in. Just after, sometime after 2 o'clock p.m., I had left the uh, west front of the Capitol after initially uh, being at the scene, assessing uh, what was going on, uh, looking at uh, just how violent, uh, uh, looking at the violent actions that were taking place. Uh, shortly thereafter, there was a phone call that was convened uh, between several officials. Uh, Chief Sun was on the call, uh, literally pleading uh, for it. There were several Army officials that were on the call. I don't know all by name who were on the call. Uh, several officials from district government that were on the scene. This Chief Sun was pleading uh, for the deployment of the National Guard. And in response to that, uh, there was not an immediate yes. Uh, the National Guard is responding. Yes, the National Guard is on the way. Yes, the National Guard are being restaged from traffic posts uh, to respond. Uh, the response was more uh, asking about the plan uh, that, you know, what was the plan for the National Guard? The response was more uh, focused on, uh, in addition to the plan, uh, the optics, you know, uh, how this looks uh, with boots on the ground uh, on, the, on the Capitol. And in, in my response to that uh, was simply, I was just stunned uh, that, you know, I have officers that were out there literally fighting for their lives. And, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of going through, you know, what seemed like a, an exercise to really check the boxes. Uh, and it was not an immediate response. Uh, the, 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 when I asked specifically, uh, Steve Sun, Chief Sun, was he requesting uh, National Guard? And was that request being denied? The response was no, uh, we're not, the, from the uh, U.S. Department of the Army, it was no, we're not uh, denying the request. Uh, but uh, the net, they were concerned, they did have concerns. So I was just, again, just stunned at that response. Capitol Police Captain. Carnesha Mendoza described what it was like to be in the thick of the devastating battle that day after rushing to work two hours before she was supposed to go on duty. I proceeded to the rotunda where I noticed a heavy smoke-like residue and smelled what I believed to be military-grade CS gas, a familiar smell. It was mixed with fire extinguisher spray deployed by rioters. The rioters continued to deploy CS into the rotunda. Officers received a lot of gas exposure, which is worse inside the building than outside because there's nowhere for it to go. I received chemical burns to my face that still have not healed to this day. Of the multitude of events I've worked in my nearly 19-year career in the department, this was by far the worst of the worst. We could have had 10 times the amount of people working with us, and I still believe the battle would have been just as devastating. As an American and as an Army veteran, it's sad to see us attacked by our fellow citizens.
I'm sad to see the unnecessary loss of life. I'm sad to see the impact this has had on Capitol Police officers. And I'm sad to see the impact this has had on our agency and on our country. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio. He is the chair of the House Appropriations Legislative Branch Subcommittee, which oversees the Capitol Police. Congressman Ryan, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, were you satisfied with what you heard in that Senate hearing today? Did it, did it, do you have questions that were not answered? Well, yeah, we still have questions as to the response time. We still have some questions around what was going on with the Department of Defense. Uh, but, but most troubling, really, Lawrence, is the, is the lead up to January 5th and 6th. And, and that intelligence coming from the FBI that never made it uh, all the way up to the chief. Um, the chief, even, even when he was asking for National Guard, and I think this is an important point, Lawrence, when he was asking for National Guard on January 6th, there were only a few hundred that he would be able to access anyway. So we, we weren't ready on so many different levels. We need, there should have been, look, the optics, the optics. What are the optics of what happened versus what the optics of some National Guard troops guarding the Capitol to make sure we have a peaceful transition of power after all the incitement that had been going on for the weeks and months to come. Those optics, I think every American would choose before the optics we ended up seeing on that day. The senators asked for phone records of the former Capitol Police Chief and the former House Sergeant at Arms uh, to try to get it straight about uh, exactly when the request was first made uh, for the National Guard. Uh, do you think you will be able to obtain those phone records uh, this week, or is that something we're going to wait for with the in response to the Senate hearing? Well, we're going to have the acting uh, chief and the acting sergeant at arms this week uh, in front of my committee. Um, so I'm not sure we'll, we'll have that information by then. But that's certainly what we want. I mean, this is maddening uh, to, to sit here and, and watch the he said, she said, the CYA happening all over the place. You worked on the Hill. This is nothing new. Um, but it is frustrating that no one can take responsibility for exactly what happened. And we need those phone records. We want the emails. We want to know who those people are who got the email from the FBI and then decided that it wasn't that big of a deal. They're just going to pass it off to the intelligence. And then here again, how many emails do you get a day? How many do I get a day? How, does, how many does most Americans who are in a professional setting get a day? And you're going to send an email to somebody? You're not going to pick up the phone and give somebody a call? What are we talking about here? The uh, former... Uh Capitol Police Chief described the way these people were equipped uh, when they arrived at the Capitol. Let's listen to that. These people came specifically with equipment. What, you're bringing climbing gear to, to a demonstration. You're bringing explosives. You're bringing chemical spray, such as what Captain Mendoza, Mendoza had talked about. You're coming in prepared. The fact that the group that attacked our West Front, attacked our West Front 20 minutes approximately 20 minutes before the event over at the ellipse ended, which means they were planning on our agency not being at what they call full strength, be, you know, watching the other events saying, hey, that event's ending. Okay, everybody get on post. They're going to be marching our way, knowing that we may not be at full strength at that time. And then also the fact that we were dealing with two pipe bombs that were specifically, you know, set right off the edge of our uh, uh, perimeter to, what I suspect, draw resources away. I think there was a significant uh, coordination with this attack. And, uh, Congressman, even after that testimony, uh, Senator Ron Johnson 
entered into the record uh, a, st a statement not by anyone in law enforcement, but by a bystander who was describing how peaceful that this bystander thought the Trump crowd was until, in this person's view, the Capitol Police provoked them into trying to take over the Capitol. Uh, absolute insult to all the rank and file members of the Capitol Police uh, in their families, uh, the 60 to 70 members of the Capitol Police and, and DC Metro who were hurt, uh, the, the two officers who uh, took their own lives, uh, the one who, who died in, in that uh, activity that day, the insurrection, that is a complete insult. It's delusional and it's an insult and they're perpetuating another version of, of the lie that, that caused this in the first place, uh, Lawrence, and to some level, and it's scary, but about 58% of Republicans actually believe what this man said because that's what's churned up on, on right-wing news media. And so there's a reason why they keep saying it. There's a reason why Hawley's pushing back and they're talking about Antifa, Antifa. You have 200 people have been arrested and their defense is the president told us to come down here. Right? You have all these flags taking down the American flags and we're going to kill people. We're going to go after Nancy Pelosi and the screaming and yelling and the hollering and the association with all these right-wing groups. I mean, come on. It's clear. The evidence is clear. Open and shut case. And yet the right-wing is becoming even more delusional about uh, you know their prospects of the future. There were no questions today about the possibility of some Capitol Police officers reportedly being overly cooperative uh, with these people when they were invading the Capitol. There, are, there have been reports of some possible investigations of maybe a couple of dozen Capitol Police officers who were be, behaving in what seemed to be too friendly a manner. Uh, do you know anything about that aspect of the investigation, and is that something you're going to be looking into? We're looking into it. Um, a lot of it gets back to the lack of command and control. The rank-and-file members, and I've, I've been talking to them now for weeks. Every time I walk past a couple, I ask them what was going on, where they were. There was no command and control structure. They didn't know what to do. You're talking about the one gentleman who put on a, a MAGA hat, and he was just trying to – he didn't know what to do. He had no orders of what to do, in our understanding. He was just trying to, like, look, I'm with you. Let's calm down. I'll put the hat on. Let's stop hurting each other. He didn't know what to do, and I think there was a lot of that going on of how do we try to defuse this, and without any advice or uh, command coming from up above, every officer was left to their own devices, and then, you know, and to put them in that position, that's what's really frustrating, is that those men and women, like the captain who testified, uh, were put in a position that put their lives in danger, and, and like I said, 60 or 70 of them have injuries and a couple committed suicide. I mean, that's what happened because of the lack of leadership. That's what we need to fix. So we need to understand the past in order to fix the future. But there were so many breakdowns on so many different levels that it's going to take some time for us to sift through all this and then and then put a real plan together, which General Honoré is helping us do, that can help us deal with this stuff in the future. Congressman Tim Ryan, thank you for joining us tonight. We will be watching your version of this hearing on Thursday.
the, the most popular legislative branch appropriations hearing in a long time. <laughs> That's you. right. First, first, time, first time we've watched. That is true. Thank you very much, <laughs> Congressman. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And when we come back, the most important debate about the Biden COVID relief bill will happen tomorrow. And that debate will determine if a minimum wage increase can be included in the Senate bill. And like all of the most important discussions in Washington, you will not be allowed to see it. Congressman Pramila Jayapal, chair of the House Progressive Caucus, will join us next. Friday at 7 on MSNBC. If the minimum wage increase is included in the Senate version of the Biden COVID relief bill, it will be thanks to the nicest man in the world who will participate in the most important debate about the Biden COVID relief bill, which will be held tomorrow. And like all of the most important debates in Washington, it will not be televised. It will be behind closed doors where the real governing happens. The debate will occur in a meeting in the office of the Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough. And by now, everyone who has worked in the Senate, including as a reporter, knows that the man I'm talking about who will participate in that debate is Bill Douster, the chief counsel of the Senate Budget Committee. And the reason I mention what a nice guy Bill Douster is, is that being nice in Washington is a sort of superpower that very, very few people have. And it makes Bill Douster all the more compelling and persuasive to listen to. In my years working in the Senate, I never dared disagree with Bill Douster. It just wasn't possible. Bill Douster also brings more knowledge and authority than anyone else to every discussion that he is in. He literally wrote the book about the Senate budget process 30 years ago, more than 10 years before Elizabeth McDonough began working in the parliamentarian's office as an assistant parliamentarian. Elizabeth McDonough is the Senate's first woman parliamentarian and possibly the most praised Senate parliamentarian ever. Democratic leader Harry Reid promoted her to parliamentarian in 2012, and Mitch McConnell has praised her fairness and judgment, calling her a brilliant lawyer. Republican Senate staffers will be in the meeting tomorrow in the parliamentarian's office arguing that an increase in the minimum wage violates Senate rules on what can be included in a budget reconciliation bill. Bill Douster will argue that the minimum wage increase does fit within a budget reconciliation bill, according to Senate rules, and Elizabeth McDonough might announce her decision by this time tomorrow night. It is common for major parliamentary issues like this to be decided by the parliamentarian before a big bill comes to the Senate floor. If the minimum wage is included in the bill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will have to work very hard to hold on to the votes of two Senate Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who don't want to raise the minimum wage as high as $15 an hour. Here is the essence of the message Chuck Schumer is delivering to Senate Democrats who might not be fully supportive of every single thing in the bill. I've made a pitch today to our entire caucus, um, and I said that uh, we need to pass this bill. The American people, the American public demands it. And everyone is going to have things that they want to see in the bill, and we'll work hard to see if we can get those things in the bill. But job number one is to pass the bill. Pass the bill we must, and I have confidence we will do it. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman 
Pranilla Jayapal, who represents the 7th District of Washington State. She is the chair of the House Progressive Caucus. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, things are going smoother and more predictably in the House as usual because you do not have a Senate parliamentarian to contend with, uh, with different rules there. Uh, and so it looks like you'll be voting on the House floor possibly, what, Friday or Saturday? Do you have any guidance on that yet? That's what we're hearing. It'll be at the end of the week. And of course, we fought very hard to keep the minimum wage provision in the bill. It is in the bill. Speaker Pelosi, Chairman Scott of the Education and Labor Committee uh, have been very, very supportive of this. And we're going to pass it, Lawrence, in our in our bill. Um, and as you described Bill Douster, I was just thinking, thank goodness we have Bill Douster on our side. I think he's going to make the arguments that we need to make in the Senate. He's also a policy expert on top of his parliamentary expertise. And let me ask you, how difficult was it to hold on to this increase to $15 in the minimum wage in the House? Well, it was challenging for a couple of different reasons. There was some procedural confusion about what we could include in the House package without having a Senate parliamentarian rule yet. And so I was able to call on Bill Douster, actually, and uh, thanks to Senator Sanders, and set up a meeting between uh, the Senate folks and our leadership folks to make sure that we were clear that there was no threatening the bill overall if we included the $15 minimum wage. And then, of course, just to continue to remind people of this unprecedented crisis that we face and the fact that this is a populist policy passed in Democratic and Republican states across the country and desperately needed in this time of COVID to pick 30 million people uh, up, to lift the wages of 30 million people, and to lift 1.3 million people out of poverty. I mean, this is a game changer when we're talking about these black, brown, indigenous, poor people across the country that have been continuing to work on the front lines but can't take care of themselves uh, and their families on $15,000 a year. Let's listen to what Chuck Schumer also said about trying to maintain unity in, how, in the Senate of, among Senate Democrats and how well that has worked so far. So far, so far, we've had great unity. On impeachment, we had great unity. On the two bills that have come before, the two votes that have come before us on reconciliation, we have had great unity. So we've had a lot of unity, and we need to keep it. With 50 votes, we need our unity, and we're fighting to get it. And so far, so good. Yes, Senator Chuck Schumer uses a flip phone. What did you expect him to use? Uh, so th that unity in the Senate is something that is very, very hard to hold on to. Uh, and so what have you learned in the House in getting, getting the minimum wage into the bill in the House that is helpful uh, for Chuck Schumer to try to hold on to it in the Senate? I just keep reminding everybody that we won the Senate majority, the House majority, and the White House because black, brown, indigenous, poor, working people across this country were crying out for help and for a change in leadership, and they were willing to give Democrats one more shot at really trying to get them the relief that they deserve and that they need. And I'll tell you, that moral argument right now actually did do a lot to keep people together in terms of what Democrats promised on the campaign trail, and what we now have to deliver. And Lawrence, you know, we don't have a lot of time here. The midterms are in two years. 
we need to show people that their lives are appreciably better, that we can get control of the virus, and that we can put money in people's pockets. That's why for the Progressive Caucus, the two most important priorities were making sure we had survival checks that went to the same you know, group of people that got them last time, and that we kept the thresholds the same, and also minimum wage. So we've been very clear about that, and uh, I think that every Democrat who balks at a $15 minimum wage, not less than 15, a $15 minimum wage, should remember that it was 2002 when fast food workers first went out and started calling for a $15 minimum wage. It was 2015 when we passed it in Seattle, became the first major city to do, do so. It has been 12 years without a single cent being increased for our lowest wage workers. Uh, Carson Jayapal, uh, we're out of time, but I, I would like to invite you to confirm one piece of my reporting tonight, and that is that Bill Douster is indeed the nicest man in the world, or at least the nicest man working in the Senate staff, or in some way, one of the nicest men you've ever met in your life. Confirmed, Lawrence. Confirmed. You are an excellent reporter. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Carson. really appreciate it. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you. And when we come back, some of the senators, even the insurrection insiders, were allowed to speak at today's Senate hearing about the attack on the Capitol. Thank you to all of the law enforcement uh, from all of our various branches who responded in this dire emergency to face these criminal rioters, uh, these violent criminals, uh, to uh, repulse them from the Capitol and uh, to secure this space so that the work of Congress could continue. During our discussion now, Zerlina Maxwell, host of Zerlina on Peacock, and Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee and host of the Michael Steele podcast. He is an MSNBC political analyst. And Zerlina, let me begin with you. Uh, there was Senator Hawley calling these people criminals after we saw that he was cheering them on that day with the raised fist. Yeah, and we all remember, although uh, Senator Hawley hopes we forget, in fact, today was a day where I, I am at my wit's end. I have no more patience anymore for the bad faith in which many of the Republicans are engaging in telling the big lie over and over and over again and acting like this was something other than people who support Donald Trump storming the Capitol building wearing T-shirts that said Donald Trump's name on them, carrying flags that said Donald Trump's name on them, chanting Donald Trump's name. And so Josh Hawley can, uh, you know, pretend that's not what happened, but it's pretty galling to watch him blatantly lie uh, and try to act like it was violent criminals when it was Trump supporters, those same supporters who he's trying to get their vote in the 2024 Republican primary. So I find it all pretty appalling, Lawrence. Uh, Michael Steele, uh, short memory seems to be what some of these uh, Republican senators are counting on. Yes, indeed. And forgive me for, for laughing coming into this segment because you played that clip with the image of Holly with his fist up and he's calling out these people and it is just laughable. It is comical. Um, Angelina's got it exactly right. The idea that we would just forget and pretend it never happened. That I'm actually on the side of the American people in this. It's just galling.
Um, when we know, in fact, that's not where Josh Hawley stood on that day. Uh, that image alone is seared in the memories of every American and is seared in the, in, the, in the minds of the men and women who serve on the Capitol as well. Uh, and, and so the reality here is you're going to get, you know, the, the big uh, rope you know, where they're just going to sort of try to box the American people into, uh, uh, you know, a cor- back them into a corner and just kind of tire us out. Uh, on on this issue, but as these hearings continue and more information is un, unfolded, I uh, hear Lawrence. I think we we don't grow tired; we grow angrier. To Zelina's point, and frustrated with the, the lie and the per- perpetuation of the big lie. There was one witness at the hearing today, uh, Captain Mendoza, who was actually in the thick of the battle, and only one who was in the thick of the battle. Let's listen to more about what you described going through uh, in the thick of that battle. I had no choice but to proceed through the violent crowd in the building. I made my way through the crowd by yelling and pushing people out of my way until I saw Capitol Police Civil Disturbance Units in riot gear in the hallway. They were holding the hallway to keep rioters from penetrating deeper into the building. I immediately jumped in line with them to assist with holding the crowd of rioters. At some point, my right arm got wedged between rioters and the railing along the wall. A CDU sergeant pulled my right arm free, and had he not, I'm certain it would have been broken. And Zerlina, she did not have any protective gear at that time. No, and I think it's important that she is a black woman um, speaking her truth about what she experienced in that day. And you saw Senator Ron Johnson uh, basically twirling his pen while she talked about the trauma she experienced as a result of the insurrection. And I just, I find it so unnerving in a way um, how we continue to take some of these folks very seriously. Obviously they're in positions of power, but I honestly think that at a certain point, there has to be a line where they get laughed out of the room when they engage in this kind of denialism, when the truth is literally under oath testifying in front of them about what happened that day and how traumatic it was for those who experienced it. And the reason why those people stormed the Capitol is because of the perpetuation of lies, to Michael Steele's point, um, but also the inability to just stand up to the base that supports Donald Trump. He's not the president. He can't even tweet. And I think that they probably should be more focused on those folks who will remember that they did this, that multiracial coalition that uh, Pramila Jayapal was talking about, that Congressman was talking about, that brought Democrats into the majority in the Senate and also back into the White House. That majority will not forget. You know, I think they say on Game of Thrones, the North remembers. We'll remember that, Lawrence. And, and Michael, the, uh, Ron Johnson uh, started reading this very strange piece written by a bystander, someone who was not in any way officially involved in this, uh, who was standing outside the Capitol, apparently at some point on the Capitol grounds inside the uh, perimeter fence, so that was not supposed to be there, uh, and describing how nice and friendly all these Trump people were until the Capitol Police provoked them. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I mean, the, the bucket of stupid that comes from some of these folks is just amazing. So of, of all the things you can enter into the record, on the heels of the testimony that you're witnessing and hearing from officers who were under siege, um, the, the officer who was sitting in front of you with chemical burns still on her face that are healing, 
and your counter is, well, there was an eyewitness who saw that uh, the rioters were actually weren't rioters. They were really nice people until the Capitol Hill police provoked them. Really? That's your comeback. That's, that's what you want to put in the official record on this matter? I mean, how do we take anything that a Ron Johnson and a Josh Hawley has to say as anything but farcical at this point? And, and, and look, you know, they, they got their seat, they got their position, and they will use it however they want. But that doesn't mean the rest of us have to tolerate the continual lying to us. And we don't. Michael Steele, Zerlina Maxwell, thank you both for joining us tonight. Thanks, Lawrence. And coming up, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock will be running for re-election in 2022, and he has already scared off the most prominent Republican who was thinking about running against him. That's next. The Trump-worshipping former Georgia Republican Senator David Perdue has had enough. After losing his Senate re-election campaign to John Ossoff, he began publicly considering running again in two years against Senator Raphael Warnock. And now, Perdue has announced that he's giving up on that dream. Senator Warnock said, I am prepared to defeat whatever Republican they come up with. Georgia Republicans are pushing forward legislation to restrict Georgians' ability to vote. Today, Georgia's Senate approved a bill requiring more identification for absentee voting. The first election turned the state blue by 2024. Stacey Abrams and her former campaign manager, Lauren Grove Wargo, argued in a recent New York Times op-ed that any state can turn blue, writing particularly those in the Sun Belt where demographic change will pre- precede electoral opportunity. Joining us now is Lauren Grove Wargo, CEO of Fair Fight Action. She managed Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor in 2018. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. I want to get your reaction to this breaking news that as of now, uh, Senator Warnock is running unopposed for re-election now that David Perdue has thought better of it. I don't think David Perdue knows how to operate in the new Republican Party, which is the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump. Georgia Republicans' house is on fire, but the one thing they agree on, Lawrence, is voter suppression. We are seeing an onslaught of voter suppression, the likes of which we haven't seen since Reconstruction. But it's not just in Georgia. It's around the country. It's over 250 voter suppression bills have been put forward across the country, Georgia leading the way with 50 bad bills. So while they are in disarray, uh, they are focused on retaliation and are moving a very racist voter suppression agenda and trying to move it through the legislature while they fight between themselves on who's going to challenge Raphael Warnock in 2022. What do you see coming in that Senate campaign for Senator Warnock? Look, it's going to be a tough fight. And that's why you're seeing the voter suppression, not just here, but also in Arizona. Arizona and Georgia both went for Biden and elected Democratic senators. And both states have Senate elections in 2022 that are going to be critical for holding the majority for Democrats. And so here's part of what I wanted to come on the show tonight to say, Lawrence, is Democrats, we got to get in formation. Republicans are in a tailspin because of Donald Trump. However, They are in formation on voter suppression. And this is very, very dangerous. Over the next decade, in the census that just happened, 
multiple states, Georgia, Arizona, whites go into the minority of the population. The demographic change of this country where whites are on track to go into the minority of population by 2045, not that far off, is accelerating in the Sun Belt. And so we have this set of dynamics going into redistricting and a census undercount and these Senate races where if we don't push back hard on voter suppression, and that means federal action this year on preclearance, on getting states like Georgia that have a racist history, and not just a history, a racist now, need to have to pre-clear their voting changes with the Department of Justice. We need automatic voter registration universally and all the changes of the For the People Act. Democrats in Congress need to get information, give Biden the cabinet that he needs so we can get moving. This is an existential threat to the future of our democracy, which was just attacked at the Capitol last month. So we feel incredible urgency here because the voter suppression is just a whole new level of egregious. And without federal action, we are fighting this every single way we can on the ground and with our allies around the country. But it's time to act. And it's time for Democrats nationally to understand how pressing this crisis is with 253 bills. And it's just starting. We're going to see even more over the next month. <clears throat> Sorry, what about meeting this challenge at the state level, uh, which also includes uh, Democrats getting serious about state level campaigns for the legislature? Absolutely. Georgia, Texas, Arizona have all made tremendous gains in the, uh, gains in the state legislature. Overall, we're about 14 seats from the majority here in the state house and um, a little further behind in the state Senate. But we're, we're within striking distance. But here's the problem. Trump undermined the census dramatically. So we had an undercount of racial minorities in this country. We'll see, we don't have the numbers yet. It's all delayed because of what Trump did. And then we're gonna go into redistricting. It's going to be late. And so the Republican party controls the machinery of redistricting in Georgia and many other battleground states. They're going to do partisan and racial gerrymandering and draw themselves their majorities for the next decade. And that means we have to have 10 year plans on our side of the aisle. That's why Stacey and I wrote that op-ed. Stacey Abrams and I met each other about 10 years ago and started charting a 10 year path. And we really built that on state legislative gains, which we have made um, since we met 10 years ago. But that's what we're going to have to do across the Sun Belt, where our population is growing and becoming more diverse. And that's what we're going to need to look at in my home state of Ohio and other tough states. What down ballot and local gains can we make? And then celebrate the victories. And sometimes victories are losing by less. Texas made gains in the legislature. They didn't win a majority like they wanted to, but they did cut their margin statewide and demonstrate that progress. And so this is going to be a tough decade. We've got a lot of headwinds but we need to fight these battles at the state level and push our federal delegations to take action on voting. Lauren Grove Wargo, you are guiding us on uh, what I think is the most important political story of our time, which is the preservation of democracy and what that means in our elections. Thank you very much for joining us again tonight. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Tiger Woods is out of surgery after a